I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to our passage this morning to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 10. We're continuing our study of a series of studies on the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And unlike the previous few weeks, we are only going to read one single chapter, Ezekiel chapter 10. But I do want to remind you that Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 really belong together as they describe the same single vision that Ezekiel sees. So we're only reading a part of what is a larger vision in Ezekiel chapter 10. Do you remember from last week how by the Spirit of God and the power of the Spirit, Ezekiel, as an exile in Babylon, was transported in a visionary way uh, inside the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, He was allowed to see the abominations, committed there by the people of God and the judgment beginning within the household of God. As we also saw the man who was dressed in linen, a priestly figure, uh, before judgment broke out, put a mark on the foreheads of the godly in order to spare them from the wrath to come in what is a clear picture of gospel hope and salvation in the midst of the judgment that is breaking out against all the ungodly. We saw all that in chapters 8 and 9 together, pointing us to the worldwide forehead, for, uh, forehead marking operation that Jesus is engaged in with the seal of the Spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. Well, chapters 10 and 11 continue that same judgment scene, and in our passage, uh, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord departing from the temple as part of that judgment, the glory of the Lord departing from his own house on account of the sins and idolatries of his people. And we are just reading chapter 10 this morning, and we'll pick up the uh, whole picture next week in chapter 11. I said all this to seek to help you and to reorient you to where we are, and also to make sure that we don't lose the forest for the trees when we are just in one single chapter. Connected to the whole vision, Ezekiel sees chapters 8 through 11. Well, before we sit under the ministry of God's word, let's pray together and seek God's present help and promised blessing upon his ordinance. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we uh, acknowledge with the prophet, which we just sang in the song, that you are enthroned in your temple, therefore all the flesh, let them be silent. We know that as the saints behold your glory, Uh, You open their mouths to rejoice in you and give praise and thanks to you. And we pray that the joy of your salvation would be clearly unfolded in the preaching of the gospel. We pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted in our midst and pray that you would refresh our souls with his riches. We'll put it within our hearts the glorious blessing of the new covenant, which is you writing your word in such a way, living way, that we ourselves are transformed. And we ask these things. In Christ's name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 10, hear God's word. We'll read the entire chapter. As you hear these words, you will realize that our passage will sound redundantly similar uh, to the initial vision Ezekiel saw back in chapter 1. Uh, This is now some 14 months after uh, Ezekiel saw uh, the visions of the glory of God. And here again in 592 B.C., 
He sees again the four living creatures, the four wheels, the likeness of the throne, and the likeness of the glory of God, so forth. Uh, it will sound repeat, uh, repetition uh, to you, but nonetheless, let us hear again the vision that Ezekiel saw, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim that appeared above, uh, over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled in a court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from heaven, uh, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And Cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like a like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had its same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions, without turning as they went, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims, and their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub. The second face was a human face. And the third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kibar canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, they stood still. When they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kibar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces, and each had four wings, and underneath their wings was the likeness of human hands, and as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Kibar Canal. Each of them went straight forward. 
Well, let's follow this reading in God's holy word. Well, as you hear these words, this whole chapter is filled with a sense of splendor and majesty. It's full of awesome descriptions of the glory of the Lord. Yet you have to remember that this is a judgment passage. God's presence is leaving his own house. The glory of the Lord is departing from the temple. The most for- terrible form of judgment that any man can face is the absence of the living God, being forsaken by God, being abandoned by God, and being shut out of the presence of God is the essence of hell. And here Ezekiel is given a glimpse of that reality with its own eyes to see visually. He's seeing the message of what the scripture says, Ichabod, the glory, has departed from Israel. That name you read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Ichabod, when a newborn child was born to his mother, and the mother, while in child, uh, child labor pains, uh, heard the news that the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines, and Eli, her father-in-law, and her husband Phineas had died on the spot, and she herself died in childbirth as she gave birth as her life was ebbing away. This was the name given to the child, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed from Israel. And here, Ezekiel is seeing that message with his own eyes in a visual fashion. In five years' time, in Ezekiel's own experience, it would be Ichabod again to a greater degree. The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians. The glory of God will depart completely. The people will face such a terrible judgment. And yet, such message of judgment I want you to see in chapter 10 comes with such glorious splendor. As we see in this passage with a cherubim, with a sapphire thrown above the expanse, the brilliance of the fire in the presence of God and the wheels that are indwelt by the Spirit that move like a divine chariot, the whole vision conveying the message of judgment is filled with things unspeakable and filled with glory. Well, let me just pose your question, pose a question to you and say to you how much glorious, how much more glorious is a message of salvation for the people of God, for sinners once shut out of the glory presence of God? How much glorious is the gospel and the sounding of the good news to you? In Jesus Christ, the message is no longer Ichabod, the glory has departed. In Jesus Christ, the message is Emmanuel, God himself is with us as we have just sung. And in Jesus Christ, we see that message truly uh, come flesh and blood. Jesus, the very radiance of the glory of God, has come to dwell with us and in us. Jesus, who is the very radiance of the glory of God, restores us back to the presence of God to enjoy him forever, to glorify him forever. Jesus has come full of grace and truth, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son, so that we with unveiled faces now behold his face, the fullness of his glory, and one day we shall be with the Lord forever. That's the gospel message, and Christ is the dividing line between Ichabod and Emmanuel. And all the detailed layouts and features of the Old Testament temple complex, things that we read in this passage, the writer to the Hebrews reminds us 
are but an earthly copy of the heavenly realities. Ezekiel's vision, in other words, is meant to show us something of the heavenly glory that God's people will inherit in everlasting blessedness. And you as God's people have already begun to enjoy foretastes of that. A down payment of that has been deposited into your life through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. And with that in mind, I want to consider four things out of the text with you this morning. I want to see and ponder, first of all, the presence of the glory of God in his temple. And then secondly, the judgment from the glory of God upon the temple. And then thirdly, the departure of the glory of God out of his temple. And then finally, the return of the glory of God to his temple. I want you to see the presence of the glory of your God in his temple. The judgment flowing out of the glory of God upon his temple. The departure of the glory of God out of his temple. And then finally, the return of the glory of God to his temple. First of all, I want you to see the presence of the glory of God in his temple, which is really described throughout the chapter, but especially in the first five verses of our chapter. It is described in a way that like some impressionistic painting just gives you a sense of the atmosphere without being able to explain it precisely and pinpoint it to you. That God is transcendently holy and majestic, that he is infinitely glorious. He's pictured as enthroned far above the heads of these angelic creatures called the cherubim. And he is seen in the expanse above, in the firmament above, in verse 1, exalted far above the heavens, and yet the highest heavens cannot contain him. Ezekiel can only see the appearance of the likeness of a throne like sapphire that is dazzling, is sparkling in purity, in pristine perfection, far exceeding all the brightest ideas that the human minds can conceive or imagine as God dwells in inapproachable light. And the Lord, his presence is attended by a train of angels. These angels who serve as guardians of God's holy presence, just as cherubim were originally placed to stand at the entryway to the garden and the tree of life with flaming swords in Genesis chapter 3 following the fall. So here in the temple, these four living creatures are but a part of the whole whole host of heaven. And writer to the Hebrews tell us that the innumerable angels in festal gathering attend the worship of God. The writer to the Hebrews says, to the angels the call goes out, let all God's angels worship him. And here we see four living creatures. And attached to these four living creatures are these four wheels traveling in concert with them. So as the cherubim mount up with wings, and as they follow the glory presence of the Lord, they do so in smooth, seamless motion because they don't need to turn to change directions as they go. As we considered them back in chapter 1, these whirling wheels are like wheels within wheels, like a gyroscopic wheels, acting as chariots of divine presence, as it were, traveling in perfect harmony in accordance with God's purpose. And the sights and the sounds are all very awesome described in our chapter. The whole temple, we read in verse 4, is filled with such brilliance and also thick darkness at the same time. The temple is filled with a glory, glory like thick smoke, and it's also filled with such brightness of the glory of the Lord. And if there is a sight of brightness, there's also sound that is awesome. 
the flapping, the vibration of the wings of these cherubims made such an awesome and august sound that can be heard even in the outer court, like the voice of the Lord that thunders. Verse 5 says, like the voice of God Almighty speaking. When the cherubim move in the inner court, people on the outside in the outer court can hear the flappings of the wings of the cherubim, like the voice of God the Almighty. That's the description we are given of the glory presence of the Lord in his temple. And what do these impressionistic details tell you this morning? Well, they should tell you that the presence of God among his people is like that. They should tell you what the presence of God with you this very morning is like, which you can only discern by faith. When God comes to dwell in his temple, and fill his temple with glory. He shines forth his light and immortality through the gospel. He causes his voice to be heard, and he causes his glory to be seen. He fills his house with his goodness. And Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, the true temple that the physical temple pointed to, the only appointed meeting place between God and man, after making purification, sat down, we read in Hebrews, at the right hand of the majesty on high, so that wherever Christ is present with his people, he reveals his glory, presence to his people like that, with his people to whom he has promised to be with forever. These impressionist details should tell us what we mean by the presence of God in the worship of his people. When we draw near to his house, when God's people gather in the name of Christ, this is the awesome reality you are being drawn into. And the focal presence of the pre- focal point of the presence of divine glory in the midst of this glorious vision is a man, the God man, the exalted man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I want you to see then the glory, the presence of the glory of God in his temple. But then secondly, Notice the just judgment that flows out of this glory presence to be poured out upon the temple. Will you look with me in verse 2, how the Spirit comes to the same man clothed in uh, linen. This is the same man we saw back in chapter 8 and 9, who marked out the remnant to be saved. His Spirit comes and commands the man to take coals of fire, burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter that burning fire a coal of fire, or sprinkle those coals over the city of Jerusalem where the temple building sits. And you see the command repeated in verse 8, where the Spirit says, Take fire from between the cherubim. And in obedience, the man took the fire and went out. Now, those of you who thought about this, this Wednesday night Bible study from Psalm 140, we reflected how God pours out coals of fire upon the wicked in his holy judgment. And the very same judgment is breaking forth from the glory presence of God through these cherubim as instruments and agents of his wrath. God's judgment is about to be poured out upon his own city for the sins and abominations committed within the temple. The cherubim, we read, have the form of a human hand under his wings and stretching out his hand in order to hand out the burning coal and fire to the man dressed in linen in order to cast that fire upon the city. 
This is a preview and a picture that the Bible gives all throughout the Old Testament of the ultimate day of judgment coming, burning coals and being heaped upon the wicked. And this is what the man in dressed in linen, the priest in the midst of the uh, temple, does in obedience. He takes in his hand burning coals and goes out and sprinkles them with fiery burning coals. Do you remember how Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, how he says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. That's what Jesus uh, spoke as he thought about the cross and what that will bring ultimately upon the earth. Jesus, as the ultimate judge of the living and the dead, one day has come to cast fire, even as the man dressed in linen is casting coals of fire upon the city. Now, if you're familiar with a temple, the only place where you can get coals of fire within the temple complex is the altar where the sin offering is made, where the sacrifice and the atoning sacrifice is to be made annually on the Day of Atonement. And here the cherubim, as it were, within the temple, taking the coals of fire associated with sacrifice and handing it to the man to execute judgment upon the city. Think how this is played out in the gospel. It is at the cross, the same Jesus took the burning coals of fire, judge, fiery judgment of God upon himself. It is Jesus at the cross who offered himself a sacrifice, who took the fires of judgment upon himself. And Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, baptism to be baptized with burning coals of holy wrath. As you see this judgment scene, again, the gospel reminds you that it's only in Jesus that burning coals that will fall down from the glory presence of God's holiness and God's righteousness are no longer going to be standing against you. They are no longer going to be an instrument of judgment. But in Jesus Christ, just as we saw in the case of Isaiah at the temple, these burning coals have become an instrument of purification and atonement, even as burning coals touched the lips of Isaiah and cleansed and provided atonement. So in Christ, the very fiery judgment of God in his holy wrath, experienced at the cross, experienced by one man, has become the very means, not of judgment, but of our cleansing and our acceptance. And do you have that assurance in your own heart this morning, believers, that Jesus has taken away all the burning sulfur and fire and burning coals from you. That Jesus, who is the very radiance of the glory of God, have made purification for your sins, and having sat down in his heavenly temple, has now removed that fire for judgment, but instead he is applying unto you, as it were, the fruit of what he has experienced at the cross in order to provide cleansing and forgiveness and atonement. That he is able to restore sinners by means of the coals of fire experienced at the cross. He is able completely to forgive all your sins by means of the coals of fire that he himself endured at the cross. Jesus I'm quite certain, quite purposefully, visually demonstrate that even on that morning on the beach, when Jesus restores Peter 
with a bountiful breakfast of bread and fish cooked over charcoal fire, as if to remind him visually of the glory of what the cross has done, that his mercies are renewed forevermore, and every morning, that it's by means of the fiery coals he himself endured, that he will go on to restore sinners back to the presence of God. So here we see the man scattering burning coals in judgment that come right out of the glory presence of God and how we are reminded here of what Jesus has done at the cross. And significantly, this Hebrew word scattering or sprinkling is used twice more by the prophet Ezekiel in order to express to us what God will do in salvation. Some of these verses you already know very well, Ezekiel chapter 26, uh, 36, where God promises his people, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Ezekiel chapter 43, he will sprinkle blood against the altar. Rather than fiery coals of judgment, what has come upon you as God's people, sprinkled upon you when you believe in Jesus, is that water of regeneration and the blood that redeemed you from the judgment to come. So both judgment and salvation flow out of the glory of who God is, the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, yet who will not leave the guilty unpunished, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his love, all meeting at the cross where you see this glory most clearly. And what you discover coming out of the cross is not burning coals of judgment upon you, but it is the blood and water Christ has shed and is sprinkling upon you by the work of his Holy Spirit. So that's the second thing I want you to see, the judgment flowing out of the glory presence of God in his, upon his temple. But then thirdly, the chapter continues with the departure of the glory of God out of the temple. And that's the main message of the vision, that the glory of God is departing. And that departure is represented by the movement of this cherubim-wheeled uh, chariot. And we saw last week how the temple was filled with abominations. We remember last week how there was this image of jealousy set up in the north gate. And notice in verse 3, the location of the cherubim, where the cherubim is standing. Verse 3 tells us that they are on the south side of the house. It is as though the cherubim carrying the divine glory presence are driven to the far opposite direction, a diameter removed from the location of sin in the temple, where in the north gate people are bowing to idols, but on the south side, in the exact opposite direction, there is this presence of divine glory. As if to remind to us visually that sin always does this. Sin provokes God, and sin drives away the presence of God. It's just like the proverb you read concerning marriage, where proverb says it's far better to live in a corner of a rooftop than a, with a quarrelsome wife. And it is as though through spiritual idolatry and adultery, provocations have so grieved the covenant Lord that he's driven out of the inner court of his house to the very edge of the court. He's standing on the very threshold Sin has forced God to evacuate his own home, as it were. Just like that husband married to a quarrelsome wife, he is driven into a corner of his house. 
standing on the threshold. And so you see uh, how God's glory is beginning to move. Verse 18, see how the glory of God rejoins the cherubim and the glory of God goes out from the threshold of the house. And verse 19, we read that the glory chariot moves out of the inner court to the east gate of the house. And in chapter 11, we'll see that the glory of the Lord leaves the temple altogether and goes outside of the city and even stands outside the city wall on the mountain on the east side, which the Jews know to be the Mount of Olives. These are the steps. Incidentally, Jesus, the very glory of God, will retrace on the night in which he was betrayed. This is Ichabod given to Ezekiel in visible form. The most terrible judgment, the essence of all misery, uh, it is when God withdraws his presence. That's what hell will ultimately be like. Hell is being shut out of the presence of God, away from his glory presence of favor. And we see here in progression the misery coming upon God's temple and God's people because the glory of God is departing. And when you think about that dynamic and how you think all your happiness is tied to the presence of your God and all your misery is tied to the sense of the absence of God, people of God in this life can testify that there are times when God seems pleased to do that to churches, to his own children, where there is this withdrawal of the felt sense of his presence without abandoning them. God sovereignly withdraws present help and comfort, maybe in discipline. And whenever God does that, believers, he does that in love to teach you to value him, to teach you once again your frailty and your weakness that you can do nothing apart from him, to reawaken you to a greater love and devotion wherever your soul is conscious of the presence of God withdrawing from you. And yet Ichabod is not where this event will end because the message of Ezekiel, as does the rest of the Bible, points to the return of the glory of God to the temple. And that's the fourth thing I want you to see, that the glory of God which is withdrawing and departing from this temple, will return to this temple. And that will happen literally in the generation to follow after Ezekiel. The exiles will be brought back from Babylon. The temple once destroyed will be rebuilt under the ministry of prophets like Haggai and Zechariah who prophesied that the latter temple will be greater than the former temple. And that return of the glory of God will in some measure, be fulfilled in the physical restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. But you and I know that the gospel tells us what that will truly look like with the coming of the Lord Jesus. It's not the physical building where God's glory will dwell and see. When Jesus Christ, who is the true temple, is raised up, he will gather his people throughout the world. He will regenerate them and like living stones, build them together into a spiritual house where his glory will truly dwell. And here Ezekiel is shown a glimpse of the new covenant reality. And later in chapter 43, Ezekiel sees the new temple 
And later in chapter 43, he sees the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. In Jesus Christ, the message is never Ichabod. If you are a believer in Christ, you never are shut away from the presence of God. But the message is Emmanuel, God is with you. Because in salvation, God has come to dwell with you. Jesus is with his people. The glory of God has been revealed in Christ and will abide with his people. And since that's true for you in Christ, since the glory has returned to you in union with Christ in your own life, in the life of this congregation, then here are three things that you need to take heart as God's people in whom God's glory presence dwelt. As we finish tonight, uh, today, uh, I want you to take to heart these three things. Earnestly seek the Lord and seek to apply these things in your own walk with Christ. And first is simply this. You need to, you need to be convinced that this is indeed the greatest blessing that you have come to possess. If the greatest judgment is the departure of God's glory, that chilling, hollow sense of the absence of God, the presence of Jesus Christ standing with his people and you standing in the presence of his glory is the greatest blessing you have come to possess in the gospel. This is the greatest, most treasured gift to his people. This lies at the heart of God's covenant promise to you that I will be your God and you will be mine and I will be with you. Just listen to the affirmations of the saints throughout the Bible testifying to this glorious reality. David in Psalm 23, Lord in the valley, you are with me. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus Christ says, I will be with you to the end of the ages. Psalm 34, Psalm 139, the presence of the Lord surrounds believers and the presence of God is around us behind and before. John chapter 14, verse 17, Jesus says, God has come to dwell in our hearts. Psalmist says in Psalm 46, God is in our midst. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 says, underneath are his everlasting arms. Psalm 145 says, God is near to all those who call upon him. John chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus says, the shepherd goes before his sheep and he will never leave or forsake you. He will be with you wherever you gather in his name. Paul says in Philippians 1, to me to live is Jesus Christ and to depart is to be with Jesus Christ. The presence of Christ, especially in the stated meetings of the church, is the most precious possession we have in reformed worship. If you don't have that conviction, it doesn't matter whatever outward form you subscribe to, whatever word you use to describe regulative principle of worship. The presence of Jesus Christ in the stated gatherings of the church is the most precious possession you have in the Reformed Church. And when you deny that, when you deny that, when you deny the reality of Christ's presence being within his temple, when people start to despise that, 
That's what begins to sap life of the, out of the church. And that's what eventually church history testifies to us, to this truth, that Jesus Christ begins to withdraw his blessings. The presence of Christ alone is what gives life and power unto all church assemblies, without which all outward order and forms of divine worship are but a dead carcass, says John Owen, the Puritan. So that's the first thing I want you to take to heart this morning. The glory of God who dwells in the temple and in the gospel, Jesus Christ is with his people. But secondly, since that is the greatest blessing, then it follows that you need to cherish the presence of Christ and the glory of God in our midst. This is the heritage that you need to treasure, value above all things. Never exchange the glory of God for things. Never take for granted or treat as a common thing or despise even the presence of God with his people. Jesus still issues a warning. It still remains to the churches that do not highly value and esteem the Lord Jesus. In his letter to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus says, When the churches live in worldliness, in compromise, in lukewarm spiritual half-heartedness, if churches don't repent, Jesus says to his churches, I will come and remove your candlestick. Jesus says, here I stand and knock on the door. If anyone hears the voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. And that's not some individual evangelistic verse. It's an invitation, exhortation given to the whole church. And Jesus says, if anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in because he is present in the assemblies of his church. And the question is, how much do you really treasure and value above all things on earth that such is my desire and my cherished ambition? How much do you take seriously the greatest blessing given to you? Don't be like the sluggish woman in the Song of Solomon who in chapter 5, when she hears the knock on the door from her beloved and the doorknob turning, the sound of the doorknob coming in, and yet she remains in her bed and she calculates, doesn't want to be inconvenienced and get up again. I put off my garment. How can I put it back on? I bathe my feet. How could I soil them? Only to discover later to her great dismay and consternation that he is gone. His presence is gone and she's missed his blessing. And this is something we see in our chapter. The glory of the Lord is something that moves. It's tied in his inscrutable wisdom, pictured here as being carried by chariot wheels, as it moves sovereignly. Whenever people seek him, he promises to reveal himself to him. Whenever people do not value him or devalue him, whenever people sin, the Lord in his glory presence removes himself. Again, church history abundantly attests to that once reformed congregations, generation or two later, are shell of themselves because the Lord has departed, because they did not take seriously the privileges given to them. But by contrary, when you come to truly value and desire Christ, when this becomes the cherished, fondest ambition and your greatest desire, 
then in, there is a sense in which you become like the angel, angels here, the cherubim who move in step with the glory of God. Do you know how the catechism puts this? Whenever we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, do you realize what is it that you are praying, actually? Short of catechism says, when we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angel do in heaven. As we are sanctified, we become more like the angels whose presence is tied always to where the glory of God is. As the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 20, Bless the Lord, all you his angels, you angels, mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. And when, the, when Jesus Christ becomes your greatest desire that you cherish, your life becomes like these chariot wheels of the cherubim that moves along with the glory of God and never want to move away from it. So that's the second thing I want you to take to heart. Cherish, above all else, the greatest blessing given to you, which is the presence of Christ. But then thirdly and finally, here's the thing you need to take to heart this morning, and it's simply that you need to draw near to him, therefore. You need to draw near to him. The psalmist says, seek the Lord and his presence continually. The presence of Christ is something you prayed for because God promised it to you. The writer uh, to uh, James says in his letter, draw near to him and he will draw near to you. God says, return to me and I will return to you. In Jesus Christ, you have this promise. You don't need to live with a withdrawn sense of God's presence as individuals, as a congregation, because God promises to reveal himself to you. When you seek him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and in promise, you are granted the joy of his presence through the Holy Spirit. He's a God who draws near to his people whenever they call upon his name. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Well, how do you do that? How do you draw near to God? Well, three things as we finish. First, you draw near to him by faith. By believing, by obeying, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father and I will come to him and make our home with him. Secondly, you draw near to him through the ordinances that God has appointed, the means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament. The ordinances whereby Christ makes manifest to his people his gracious power to save, his benefits of redemption, and his glorious presence. Let me remind you afresh of the description of the Pentecostal church in Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit is outpoured, what do you see at the end of Acts chapter 2? The saints devoted themselves to prayer, to apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread, to fellowship. They devoted themselves to word, prayer, sacraments, to fellowship. You draw near to God through the ordinances that he has appointed. And thirdly, you draw near to him only in and through the Lord Jesus. He's the only mediator. There is no other way. There is no other channel whereby you enjoy and experience the glory presence of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You have nothing apart from him, but in him you are brought to the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
psalmist says in Psalm 73, Oh God, nevertheless, I'm with you. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My heart, my heart, my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but as for me, the psalmist says, it is good to be near God because I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell all your works. But that's the confession of every true believer. And all the more so for those who are indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. May we truly seek him. May we cherish his presence. May we live with his conviction that we have been blessed with the greatest blessing, even the presence of our God, who is the God of glory. Let's pray together.